Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sarah. And I'm Beth. We're lawyers, mothers, and host of the bipartisan podcast, Pantsuit Politics. Just as we differ in political philosophy, we've arranged our lives in very different ways, from our careers to where we live to our choices about marriage and family. But we have more in common than divides us. In a world that increasingly defaults to false dichotomies, we explore the messiness of living wisely. The choices, trade-offs, priorities, and grace of living a nuanced life. Welcome to another episode of The Nuanced Life. We are so happy and grateful and appreciative to be back in your ears this Wednesday. Today, we are going to be sharing a couple commemorations and a little bit of feedback and then jumping into our conversation with Megan Devine, author of It's Okay That You're Not Okay, Meeting Grief and Loss in a Culture That Doesn't Understand. Y'all, I'm so happy with this conversation. I know why y'all kept pestering us to interview Megan. It's because she's a genius. And I might or might not have offered her a third co-host position on this podcast without best permission at the end of our interview because it went so well. So I cannot wait for you to hear this conversation. We are going to start out with commemorations from Cecilia. She said, I am a 21-year-old college student. I'm studying nursing in Ohio, but I'm originally from the beautiful South Dakota. This week, I want to commemorate giving myself time for rest. School is on its midterm break, and usually during breaks, I go home to see my family and work. But this semester, I stayed in my cozy dorm room. I have spent the break cooking and crafting, which I love, catching up on podcasts and audiobooks, and exploring a city that even after three years is mostly new to me. This is the first time in six months that I've given myself time for a tree rest. This is a big step for me. I spend so much of my time caring for other people, but I'm not the greatest at self-care. This week, I'm spending the whole week doing things for me, and I've enjoyed every minute. Good for you, Cecilia. Amen. I liked how she said cozy dorm room. I immediately was like, had such a longing for my dorm room. I listened to um, The Next Right Thing, Emily P. Freeman's podcast, and she was talking on one that I listened to recently about how most of us are getting counterfeit rest, which is basically like I go until I collapse and then I rest, and that real rest is intentionally leaving things undone. Oh, oh, you're just saying that out loud gives me anxiety. Okay. Because – and it being – clear on the fact that they'll be there to do later. I mm, know, but mm, okay. I'm just, I'm trying to, it is good. I know when I have a reaction of nausea, that means it's it's very good insight I need to hear it, but it is, I'm having a very nauseous reaction to the idea of like leaving things undone. It's very difficult to listen to. Well, it's but, not that you never do them. It's that you rest and then come back and do them, <sighs> knowing know. that you'll be able to do them better. Because you got some real rest. I have a very similar reaction when my therapist was like, you need to just end the day and think. I did everything I could do today. And I'm like, mm, I'll practice it, but I won't mean it. Oh, it's just hard for me. Just going to be honest. Well, I think that what Cecilia has done here is beautiful. Okay. Well, I, we want to share a commemoration that is an excellent transition into our feedback. So we got a commemoration from Jackie. She says, I wanted to send in a positive commemoration about birth control. I'm 29 years old and have been sexually active for 15 years. And thanks to birth control, I've never experienced a pregnancy. I grew up in a rural area with a fairly high rate of teen pregnancy. And because of the pill implant options, I was able to be the first in my family to go to college. I graduated from Smith College in 2011 and soon will complete graduate school while pursuing a career without ever having to deal with the impacts of an unplanned and unwanted pregnancy. While I wholeheartedly understand the side effects can 
can really impair life for some people. I don't want us to treat birth control like it's not a miracle that has allowed people with uteruses freedom from our biology and the ability to control if and when we have children. I'm married, and both my husband and I are not sure if we ever want children. Don't want an accident to make that choice for us. While I do dream of a world in which birth control options are available that aren't detrimental in their side effects, I don't want any young people to feel like the side effects outweigh the impacts of an unplanned pregnancy. I taught high school and came to New Jersey, very high poverty rate, and vast majority of my students were parents. Several girls told me that an aunt or older sister had told them that birth control would screw them up or be bad for them in some way, and they trusted the older female counsel they received without questioning it or allowing themselves space to consider the timing of their children or if they truly wanted them. Being a teen mom was accepted as an inevitability by many of my students. Of course, there are some exceptional folks who have kids as teens and are able to finish high school, college, and have great careers, but many do not and face a set of long and very real challenges and stigma. I just wanted to add some nuance to your birth control thoughts shared last episode. It is life-changing in a positive way for many of us, especially for the people who do not have the social, financial, or support to pursue abortion care in the event of an unplanned pregnancy. What a beautiful nuance to commemoration from Jackie. I really appreciate that. And I should say, for the record, that I took birth control and was sexually active from the age of 19 until 28, and it did its job. I should make that clear. Yeah. And I want to say we got a pretty angry letter from someone in the medical field about my comments were intended to be about the pill, not about IUDs, which I do think are miraculous and work wonders for lots of people. And I think the same thing about the pill. I'm glad it's available. I'm happy people are using it. I also feel that a lot of people receive it without a good explanation of all the things that can surround taking the pill. And so if you are out there making an informed choice and this is the right decision for you, hooray. In my personal experience, condoms have been the form of birth control that check all the boxes. Mm -hmm. Cheap, no side effects for me. I feel that the responsibility is shared equally between me and my partner. And I think that's really important in our relationship. And so that is my choice. But I am happy that there are choices available. I want there to be more choices. I also want there to be more information about each one of those choices. And that's that's kind of where I land. I, I don't want to keep anybody from making decisions that help us avoid unplanned pregnancies that we cannot support. Yeah, IUDs are awesome, especially the non-hormonal ones. I mean, I, when I worked at Planned Parenthood, it, it was the number—I think that was this was actually a national just, just statistic that it's the number one form of birth control used by providers, which are people pretty well informed about their contraception choices. So IUDs are a great option. It just it stinks because for the small pop percentage of the population that's going to have a reaction to an IUD, the reactions are not awesome. Um, and I, I mean, that's true of any any medical device or prescription drug. I had actually um, the little things that they put in your tear drains because I had dry eyes and it was like 1% of the population has a reaction to them. And I did. So there you go. Um, it's just some of us are highly sensitive to these types of things. I mean, I think birth control is... Yeah, it's it's been a miracle for the the female species that there's no doubt about that. I just think that it because we liked the option, we stopped talking about if there were more or better options. I guess that's what I is what's unfortunate. I think that we, you know, there were there were a lot of people trying to improve birth control and do research on birth control or I don't know if try to improve it, but try to change it be they pharmaceutical companies or the like. And I don't know if if women were really included in the conversation. I think that's what's really unfortunate about the whole thing. and I, But I think that's changing. I hear ha- women having really honest and thoughtful conversations about birth control options and what works for them and what doesn't. And I mean, I think that's the conversation. It's so important just so no matter what, if you love it or you hate it, you have someone that's sharing that experience and you understand like that you're not alone. I think that's most m- the most important thing. Well, that's the thing. What really gets me fiery about medical conversations. And I understand that I get that way. And I also notice a trend in our feedback that I get angrier messages from medical providers Mm -hmm. about medical treatment than anything political that we discuss anywhere. Yeah, And I think that's because this is a really hard area, and I am sympathetic to what providers endure and how often they feel villainized or misunderstood or blamed no matter what. And and I am grateful for our medical providers and for the people who who have the training and the insight to help us make better decisions. At the same time, I am concerned about the power differential in those relationships, which leads those of us on the, the smaller end of that power, 
people who don't have the training and education and experience. Often, not only incapable of making good choices because we aren't questioning the provider, but even more than that, not giving the provider all the information they need to help us make those choices. When I was put on birth control, I was at such a young age, I did not have the real, detailed, gross conversation with my doctor that I needed to have because it felt gross to me, right? (laughs) Because I was so young that that's where my mind was. Today, I would approach that conversation very differently. And it might be that the provider still recommended the birth control and I still took it and still found it to be not good for my body. But I would have that interaction very differently because I'm older, because I've had some education now, because I've I've had some life experiences that make me more equipped to be honest with my physician. And so I would never encourage any young woman not to seek out birth control. Hear me. If you want to be sexually active as a young woman, please talk with someone about all of your Mm -hmm. choices. Please feel empowered in those conversations to share all of the information that is pertinent to making the right decision for you. And if you start taking something and feeling weird or different, share that with your provider. I'm not trying to villainize doctors ever. I am saying sometimes because of the way we have historically interacted in the doctor-patient relationship, the patient doesn't bring everything to the table that we need to in order to get to the best outcome. I totally agree. We are going to talk about another area where people need care. Megan Devine is a therapist who counseled folks about grief before having her own experience with grief that caused her to deepen her understanding of what people need in terms of support. And our discussion of her book, It's Okay That You're Not Okay, Meeting Grief and Loss in a Culture That Doesn't Understand, was just a wonderful experience for both of us. We are so delighted to share it with you now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Lola is a female founded company offering a line of organic cotton tampons, pads, and liners. They now offer sex products too. Lola makes your month a little bit easier. Their subscription is fully customizable, so you can choose your mix of products, absorbency, number of boxes, and frequency of delivery. Lola's subscription is super flexible. You can change, skip, or cancel your subscription at any time. The Sex by Lola line is available for subscription. You can add to your period subscription so everything is conveniently delivered on your ideal schedule. In addition to condoms and personal lubricant, Lola now offers cleansing wipes. The wipes are safe for use anywhere on the body. The first biodegradable, all-natural wipe of their kind. They're perfect for a midday refresh or post-sex cleanup. They're individually packaged and perfect for on-the-go, and they're gynecologist-approved and hypoallergenic. They also have a really fresh scent and are just useful in a all variety of circumstances. <laughs> this is how I find all of Lola products. You can just tell that women designed them for women to use them. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate the way they are packaged. I appreciate the flexibility Lola has built in. I endorsed condoms earlier on the show today and will say that we are using Lola's condoms and I think they're terrific and I would highly recommend them to our listeners. And I would add that I have had reactions to condoms in the past and were not able to use lubricated condoms. I thought that was an option that was no longer available to me. And I am so happy that it is now an option available to me again. That makes everything so much easier. So if you've had reactions in the past, like I have just allergic reactions, then try out Lola because they their lubricated condoms did not trigger the same sort of reaction I've had in the past, which was really nice. So there you go. For 40% off all subscriptions, visit mylola.com and enter LIFE when you subscribe. That's mylola.com. Enter promo code LIFE.
We are so delighted to be here with Megan Devine. We reached out to her because we had a pretty fair amount of listeners being like, you need to talk to her. You need to talk to her. And at first I was like, oh yeah, I get it. Okay. We need to talk to her. And then I started reading the book and I'm like, oh my God, we really needed to talk to her. They knew what they were. Of course they did. Our listeners always know. But this book is, I said I wasn't going to cry, but I'm probably going to cry. It's just so, Megan, what a delight to have you here. Your book is a gift to humanity. Tell us about yourself and how you ended up writing this book and just introduce yourself to our listeners who haven't already been harassing us to talk to you. Okay. I love to hear that people have been harassing you. Um, Total. It's one of my favorite things about the work that I do is seeing how it spreads and being mm-hmm. able to see um, see how my words have landed for people and what it means to them and that they care enough about what they're learning, uh, what mm-hmm. they're having reflected back to them, that they will make phone calls and send emails and texts and um, slide into people's DMs and all of these things being like, can we talk about this? Mm-hmm. So, backstory for one second for those of you who ha- don't know who I am and haven't been pestering uh pestering these ladies with with messages <laughs> I uh my book is called it's okay that you're not okay meeting grief and loss in a culture that doesn't understand and I talk about the elephant in the room the things that we don't mm-hmm. out, but need to the ways that we show up for ourselves and for each other when our hearts get broken, when people die, when life goes sideways, all of those things that we like to pretend don't happen or happen to other people, but become earth changing, earth dissolving mm-hmm. when they happen to you or to happen to your circle. So that is what I spend my time doing is is talking about how hard it is to be here sometimes mm-hmm. and show for that. So early on in your book, the first thing that I thought, oh, I love this woman and her teaching is when you talked about grief as a form of love. Mm-hmm. I felt like that just opened up all of these possibilities that I'd never considered. Mm. So true. Yeah. Well, you know what it reminded me of when Beth and I went to the DNC and they had the mothers of the movement come out. And one of the mothers said, I'm still mothering my child, like just because they have past. I'm still in a relationship with that child. I'm still trying to figure out how to be their mother. Because like you said, look, I'm already crying. Like if it is about love, then it's not over. The love right. didn't go anywhere. Yeah. And in this culture, we treat grief like a pathology. Mm-hmm. Right. This is you're you're still sad six months after your baby died. Well, fucking of course you are. Yeah. <laughs> right. You, you're right. still longing for the person. You're still thinking of the person a year and a half after your brother died with, by an accidental overdose. Of course you are. Right. Right. We, we treat this, um, we treat grief. We treat a response to the loss of somebody important to us as though there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Grief isn't a disease. It's, it's part of that, that long arc of love. Yep. Well, and that's what I thought was so brilliant. Like here is a, here's a, here's a, um, crib notes on how to get me obsessed with your book is to spend the first three chapters talking about cultural messages because books that dive right in to the individual and say, Oh, here are the tips you need to solve this problem without saying, well, let's talk about why it's a problem to begin with. Let's talk about the, what, you know, one of my favorite, my favorite quotes we talk about a lot on both podcasts is the when the fish the older fish swim by the two younger fish and say, "Hey fellas, how's the water?" And the younger fish go, "Wait, what's water?" Like when you just you have to look at the water. Let's what's the water? We're all swimming here. In. Yeah. And I and think your examination of the water of grief in our culture is a gift to humanity. It is a gift to humanity. Thank you. And that I think mean, that's the thing, right? That. When I talk about these things, I'm really talking about the tip of the iceberg, the way that we treat each other inside grief. So my my normal world are the the out of order or atypical deaths and losses. So baby death and suicide and violent crimes and natural disasters and illnesses that happen um, early on in life. Mm-hmm. I talk about other things too, but these things that are sort of random and atypical the way that we treat each other inside grief, especially in those sorts of things that terrify us, 
is just part of the larger picture of how we show up for any kind of pain in the world. And Mm -hmm. that's why I started the book with the cultural reference. So one thing I do say in the beginning of the book is if your life just exploded, if things just went sideways, maybe a discussion about the cultural roots of grief avoidance. I love that part. Mm-hmm. are not really for you. They don't yeah. matter. You don't care. You don't care and you don't need to. <laughs> and the way that we make things better for grieving people at that sort of ground zero when their life has gone sideways is we is the people who do have the bandwidth to talk about the wider culture. Mm-hmm. We got to talk about the wider culture, right? Because you want to show up for your person whose life just dissolved. You want to be a good friend. I know that. We have excellent intentions. It's just that culturally, the way that we've been taught to respond to somebody else's pain is wrong. So we don't have the tools that we need to show up in the ways that we really want to. And if we don't talk about how the culture is messed up, we're never going to learn the right tools. Right. Well, and here's where, when you were talking about all this and the cultural reaction and how we all express that cultural mess is when you said we in our culture are so bad at giving voice to our pain so that when someone else is in pain, it's like we have this subconscious, oh, here's my moment to talk about my pain. Yay, nobody ever let yeah. me talk about my pain. Here's my chance. And I thought, oh, my Lord, that is the smartest. That is, that is the truth. That is the biggest yeah. truth I've read recently. It's so, and I thought about so many things, like I analogize it to, this is what happened. I'm a, I'm a local city commissioner and this is what happens with politics. When you, when you knock on people's doors, it's like, we tell people they can't talk about politics. So when you knock on their door to ask for their vote, they're like, this is my chance. <laughs> That's what people do with pain. Like they have so much unexpressed. They're like, oh, well, this means I'm safe to talk about it. And like when I was reading, particularly that section, I don't know why this this came to my memory because I know this is not the atypical loss that you were speaking of, but I was just thinking about like how many people carry around a lot of pain from their parents' divorce. How often I would see that bubble up in like shows about addiction and and all these these really like painful life processes. And I thought, man, that's like a pain that doesn't, the reason probably there's so much impact of that particular loss is because how hard is it to look at your child and say, let me listen to the pain that this choice is causing you. And so it goes so unexpressed. Yeah. And that's what I'm talking about is, you know, when I say my sort of tight focus, a lot of the time is around deaths like those. What I, what I'm really pointing to is that larger culture. This Mm -hmm. is, this is data right? Like Mm -hmm. because we have these epidemics of unspoken grief from divorce, from your dog getting sick, from Mm -hmm. things not working out the way that you wanted in your deepest dreams. Like I'm not going to say these are lesser losses. These are common losses. These are like everyday ways that, that it hurts to be alive, that it's Mm -hmm. hard. And we don't talk about that stuff. What this says to me is that Across the spectrum, we are wrought at not only talking about grief, but more importantly, hearing it, Mm. pain of any kind, so that when any, there's any chance, any chance at all, even tangentially related, we're like, oh, thank God, now I can say, ow, I hurt too. And this is why we have that competition too, right? We have this um, lived experience of compassion being in short supply of the willingness to truly listen without jumping in to fix something for somebody being in relational short supply. And that's why, you know, sometimes I'll post something on the, on the business Facebook page about uh, grief surrounding pet loss. And occasionally people will freak out and be like, how dare you talk about pet loss? My baby died. Or, you know, my um, husband was killed in a freak accident and you're talking about somebody's dog and they just like, they, they, they haven't been around long enough to know that that's not the way we treat each other. But there's something in there about um, when we treat compassion like a scarce resource. Oh my gosh, so true. We have to compete. Like that's what yep. we do when resources are scarce, we fight over it. When you use the phrase grief Olympics, I oh felt like gosh. that just put all of these pieces together for me. I carry around a grief that many people feel is undeserved. Um, mm-hmm. I'm an accidental killer. I My car ran into a person who I don't know who died. It, accident mm-hmm. wasn't my fault. Um, doesn't matter. I still grieve. So I've spent my adult life yeah. grieving a person I've never met. 
And mm-hmm. I think so many people have a sense that that is unmerited grief because, mm-hmm. of course, that's different than losing someone I knew well and spent every day of my life with. But I'm so grateful for the way your book says that's still a form of love and we don't have to rank these things. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. When we can come to any kind of loss and say, I hear you and I see you. Compassion in reality is not a scarce resource. It is abundant. And the way that we get enough for us is by also offering that out to others. And so what I want to say about your loss is, oh my God, yes. Right? Like that is a valid experience and a valid grief, not only for the person who was killed, but also for who you were. Yes. Right? Your life changed as well. And that's not something that just goes away. Right. Well, and you know, what's so weird about the grief Olympics, we do it both directions. We do it with people. People say my grief is worse than yours. And then inside our own heads, I know I'm definitely guilty of this, of doing the, well, mine's not as bad, so I can't be as sad. So, you know, I lost a pregnancy at 20 weeks and I go out of my way to say like, I'm, I am both offended at people who imply like, and early miscarriage is the same of losing a pregnancy at 20 weeks. And also <laughs> I do the opposite in terribleness, which is like saying, well, it's not as bad because it wasn't a stillborn. Like I'm doing that in my own head going yeah. both directions. Gosh. I mean, that, and this, you're a product of your culture. Congratulations. <laughs> right? Both things are true. Like we're trying to find, find an anchor. Right. Mm-hmm. And of course I can look at, you know, when my partner died, I, I, you know, people would say to me like, oh, you know, there's, there's genocide in Rwanda. There is, you know, starvation happening here and all of this stuff. And I I get the intention behind here, pick up, pick your eyes up from the ground and look at the wider picture. Um, I get the intention there and it's to alleviate pain. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, what that does again, in either direction is make somebody feel unheard or invisible that there are losses that are more life altering than yours does not negate the pain you're in mm-hmm. that there are losses that are less life altering than yours does not negate the pain you're in. Right. But this is, this is what we do when functionally as a society, compassion is a scarce resource. We yeah. have to figure out where we are in the continuum to know whether our pain is valid or not. And there, if it's valid, um, how much can we defend our right to be in pain? Right. This right. Is, this is something that happens. Like we're just we're just rot at it um, across the spectrum, right? You, you're mm-hmm. standing in line at your coffee shop, and you have a casual acquaintance there in the line, and you say, "How's your day?" And they say, "It's actually really hard. Like my kid was sick this morning, and it made me late to work, and I just need my coffee." And the line is really long, right? Our very first thing we do is at least the sun is out, yeah. right? You just missed your daily practice, right? Like what's a, what's a more skillful response? If we want to get better at this stuff, that's to go, that sounds like a really rough morning. Do you want to cut in front of me so you can get to your bus faster? Mm-hmm. How mm-hmm. easy is that? Right. But that's not how we're trained. And you know, I, I spend a lot of time saying, man, we're bad at this. Right. And it's, it's like one of those things where it's not your fault that you don't know how to respond to pain in yourself or in others. But once you recognize that what we're doing isn't working, it is your responsibility to learn to do better. Mm-hmm. It's not your fault, but it is your responsibility to do better when you know that what we're doing isn't working. Well, and you especially feel that when you have friends that are good at it, like you, when you can have the the healing experience and just the affirming experience when a friend, I have several friends, one of which is Beth, who will say like, I'm sorry, that must be really hard. And it catches my breath every time. Yeah. And I kind of tear up because I have a family who loves me deeply, but our our familial response is always sort of criticize, do better, take mastery, that mastery thing mm-hmm. that you talk about, which I think is so genius. And I have that driving myself so badly. And I have have over time at least taught myself to sort of um, channel it in a more productive way. And that I can say, I'm sorry, that's really hard. 
and I can resource Sherpa if I feel like people, if people ask me for it, cause I do yes. like to try to, you want to help people. And l- let me tell you, everybody I know is going to be getting this book. So that's going to be real easy. <laughs> I'm like, I got the perfect thing for you. Coming your I know way. just what you need. And uh, I, got I also love the phrase resource Sherpa. I just want to make sure everybody heard that because that's an awesome phrase. <laughs> Beth made that up. Beth made that up for me. That's awesome. I love it. I'll, yeah. I'll give you the little shout out when I, when I share it. Uh, it's so a good, it's a good something term. Really, something really interesting here though. Like we all have that impulse to help and it's a great impulse. It's mm-hmm. what I want us to do though, is to, um, before we jump in with deciding what that person needs, needs, right. Ask them what mm-hmm. they, my, my friend and colleague, Kate Kenfield, um, who's a sex and relationship educator and teaches people about empathy skills. She's awesome. Also look her up. Uh, she has this great question when she hears pain in somebody else. She says, I hear that. Do you want empathy or a solution right now? Which one would be? Oh, most- it's so good. I need How that. On a is that, I need that tattooed right? on my arm? Yeah. So consent in all things. For the most part, I would say there's no scientific data here, but just my normal guess for this morning, I would say about 93 or 94% of the time, we don't want advice. We just want to be heard. Mm-hmm. We're so addicted to giving advice in this culture. It's such a knee-jerk reaction. I don't need advice most of the time. If I need advice, I know who to go to and I know to ask clearly. Right? Well, and here's what I've noticed in myself too, is that you can tell when you're offering a solution for to make yourself feel better yeah because you get frustrated when they don't want it and yeah. that means sorry, you were doing it for you. making me have feelings and I don't like that so can yeah. you clean that up for me well and it's like you know you do even that like you have the well I have the perfect thing for you and they're kind of like oh I'm just not up for that right now and you can feel yourself being like but I'm trying to help you well no yeah. you're trying to make yourself feel better that's why you're frustrated yeah. that they don't want yeah. your perfect resource you yeah. know <laughs> that's how you yeah, can and tell people get really prickly about that they're like yep. you know, some, some of the hate mail that I get is is around that sort of people have good intentions you need to cut them some slack right? Like how dare you say that what we're doing isn't helping because we have good intentions and we're just trying to help lighten up. Well, here's what I have to say about that. If you have good intentions, if you truly want to be of service to somebody you care about, then you need to know that what you're doing isn't helping so that you can be more effective in delivering Mm -hmm. the intentions you have. If you get pissed off, when somebody says, I actually don't need advice right now, what I need is for you to come walk the dog, you get pissed off, you're not interested in being helpful. You're interested in appearing helpful. And that is a very different thing. Word. Preach. I find it so difficult to communicate my intention to be helpful to people without mm-hmm. making them feel burdened to figure that out mm-hmm. for me. So I've, oh, I would yeah. love to get your reaction to this. I've been trying on sort of once we're in that stage, we're, we're past empathy, right? And we're getting to, I, I want to be of service to you. How can I do that? I've been trying on saying to people, tell me anything that you need. I'll come do your laundry. I'll clean your house. Um, I will walk your dog. If you don't tell me anything that I can do, I will bake you cookies. That's my default. And and yeah, people that. seem to respond well to that. But I would love those tips on how how can we really do better? Yeah, let's fine tune that a little bit. So I, I I really love this topic, right? There's this whole idea of emotional labor. Yes. Right. And we're seeing that across a lot of different spectrums when we're talking about systemic racism, right? We can't mm-hmm. ask communities of color to do the emotional labor to help us yes. figure out how to not be right. right. Like that's not their job. Mm-hmm. And the the same thing in, in other relational experiences as well, too, right? Like I remember, um, you know, when Matt first died, I had amazingly skilled, wonderful people in my life. And I actually avoided them sometimes because they wanted to know, how are you doing today? What is this like for you? What can I do to help you? How does like so many um, bids for connection and for information that it was exhausting? I didn't have the bandwidth to figure out what I needed, articulate that clearly figure out who might meet those needs, and then ask those people to do those things for me. That was light years away from what I was capable of. I was capable of perhaps getting out of bed and taking the dog outside to pee and maybe drinking a glass of water by noon, right? Like, so asking me to do all these other things was just like, it was a lovely gesture. And it was, it was hard for me to see it and know that I couldn't respond. 
So what I love, uh, especially in early days, and and you can define early days however you'd like. I'm not going to put a parameter on that. So coming to your person that you're trying to support with some really clear, tangible offers. I love that you that you're doing that. So it's like, here are some things that I'm able to do for you. Would any of these things be helpful? Mm-hmm. If not, here's what I will do. I will, um, you know, I'm going to deliver a, a slow cooker full of awesomeness on Tuesday afternoons. I'm going to come back by on Wednesday. And if it's still outside, I'm going to take it away. Yep. Right. I and I'm not going to be upset. It doesn't matter. Exactly. You know what? And you can be upset. It's just, where does that upset belong? It doesn't belong at your grieving person. Share right. that with your friends. It is hard to show up for a grieving person. We are impossible. <laughs> it's true, <sighs> right? Like being of service to somebody in pain is not an easy job. I yeah. get that. It is hard. We are emotional. I used to tell a friend of mine, you can't win, right? You don't call me and you're ignoring my pain and going on with your life. How dare you? You do call me and you're invading my space. Mm-hmm. You can't win, right? The challenge of that, the fatigue of that is valid and it's real and you deserve support around it. Don't get that support from your grieving friend. The same way that right. we don't get communities of color to help us when we're waking up to systemic racism, that belongs with your own <laughs> with your own folks who are also waking up, right? Like do it with the people who are not currently suffering. And mm-hmm. it's valid. It is hard to do this work. And your grieving people appreciate your effort. They might not be able to tell you right now, but they do. Mm-hmm. Right? So tangible offers of support. And also, I really like the idea of parallel play. There's not a lot of playfulness sometimes in early grief, but the, the term parallel play here comes from um, child development. Right? There's a certain stage of toddler um, and young child development where they don't really want to play with other kids but they will play near them. Mm. That's so useful. Anytime somebody is having a hard time, we don't always want to sit down and talk it out. Sometimes there is no mojo for that. Sometimes there is nothing to say, but it's awesome to like go out and um, read books together at the coffee shop or weed the garden together or, you know, any of those things. Those are great offers because companionship is important. So I, yeah. I really love like come up with two or three things from from your point of view that would seem useful and advantageous, right? I will come take the trash out. I will come do the laundry. I will, you know, do whatever. And leaving that open for if none of these things work, I will keep showing up with food, with offers, right? There's a there's a a, a link in the back of the book to uh, how to help a grieving friend, 11 things to do when you're not sure what to do, mm. right? It's not enough for me to just say, ah, we're so bad at this without giving some actual things you can do instead. I always think of it like when you're trying to quit smoking, if we just say quit smoking, but we don't tell you what to do with your hands, you're going to keep smoking. Yeah. <laughs> right? So I can't just say, stop being bad at this and not say what you can do. So there is there is in the book and on the website, Refuge in Grief, there's a link to how to help a grieving friend to give you some ideas of where to start. Well, and you know what else I think that needs to have, a, we need to have a conversation. I kind of feel like your book and Diana Butler Bass's book, Grateful, need to be sold in a package because with grief, I think we get caught up in some of our really messed up attitudes about gratitude. And so if you're a grieving person and you're feeling so weighed down, by your grief and by your experience. And then people start showing up and doing things for you in a culture in which we teach people that gratitude is transactional. And so if you do something for me, I need to do something back. That's what her book is all about, right? Like gratitude is not about, it's not a patronage. It's not, you gave this, you, you left me a slow cooker of food and now I owe you something. But I think so many people, gratitude, like so many grieving people feel that pressure to pay back all the nice things people did while they were grieving and it creates like this other emotional sort of baggage when, you know, what she talks about so much is like, it's just a flow. It's, you know, in the fact, in the, in that also grief is a, is a reflection of love. So is gratitude. It's just, I love you. I'm flowing this energy your way. That's it. It's just flowing through you. That's it. All your job is to do. It's not, I don't even want to use the word job. 
like the only experience is to let it flow through you and on to the next person. Like, but I think that that's what gets caught up with people too, is they feel this like, like, I remember we had a listener who, who said, I think, um, when her father passed away, people would send her cards and they'd say, like the biggest gift she got was people who would send things and at the bottom say, no need for a thank you note. Like that, cause we feel like you like owe it back to them or something like so silly. These, this, this transactional way we treat all of this. Yeah. I mean, that's a bigger cultural picture too, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff within gratitude. One thing is that transactional thing where we have internalized the idea that we aren't worthy of love and support mm-hmm. existence, right? That you have to, that, that someone loving you creates a debt you have to repay. Right. What horseshit is that? Mm-hmm. And where does that, I mean, especially for women and women identified folks, like there is this thing about taking up space and being um, in need of your people. Like, how dare you be needy? We have such an idea that needy is this horrible pathological thing mm-hmm. that you need to spit out of your mouth as soon as possible. Like, what the hell is that? Yeah. That again, is part of a big culture that profits from us feeling alone and needy and needing to to work overtime in our relationships just so that we're worth the scrap of love and attention that we get. Garbage, giant stuff to unpack in there across a lot of different facets of life. It's like, it's like we've decided exactly what you're saying that it's we've we've decided to preference feeling unworthy to feeling vulnerable to the chaos of the universe. Mm-hmm. We've decided it's less painful to decide we're not we we just screwed it up and it's within our control. We just didn't try hard enough yeah. then to say it doesn't matter how hard I try. The universe is full of chaos and pain and some of it might roll my way. And we've yeah. decided that's like, it's more painful to say, well, I, it's within my control and I just didn't try hard enough to saying it's not within my control and it's going to run my way sometimes. And that is the vulnerability of that is yeah. so hard in our culture, yeah. I think. All of it is. And that first part of the book that you were talking about earlier unpacks so much of that. Like, why do mm-hmm. we even have these strange human mechanisms that we've created over centuries to make us feel like we're not worthy of love and respect, that others mm-hmm. aren't worthy of love and respect, that needing each other is faulty. Mm-hmm. It, there is so much in there. And, you know, it's it's that sort of rabbit hole of discovery when you start unraveling these things, like, why does this happen? And why does this happen? And for me, it really does all boil down to existential pain avoidance, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Of it, that we aren't in control. Our hearts get broken in ways that can't be fixed. We lose the things that we love. It is hard to be here. Mm-hmm. And that's just true. And it's it's painful to be loved, honestly. Mm-hmm. It's painful to feel adored in such a way that people will show up for you. Like I'm I'm not entirely sure why that is so hard to let in, but we are certainly because if you let it in, it you could it could go away you know? Right. Right. There's, I mean, there's a, there's a lot in there. And, you know, another thing that I want to pick up on our, on our unpacking gratitude thread here is gratitude is also sort of weaponized Mm -hmm. in our culture. We look at somebody in pain and we say, you need to be grateful for what you have. Asshole who that is. (laughs) Right. Like, again, we come back to, you are making me uncomfortable with your feelings. And so you need to shut those feelings down so that I don't Mm -hmm. have to feel anything. Well, Mm -hmm. too bad. Right. But this this idea that gratitude is a cure all for, you know, getting you out of any kind of pain, just um, just start saying thank you and things are going to be better. No, they are not. Right. You Mm -hmm. say this to um, a a father whose child has died and you say, be thankful for the other children you have. Well, you know, he's probably thankful for all of his children, but that doesn't take away from his pain. You can be grateful and be in pain. Mm-hmm. I am grateful that my body works most of the time, right? But that doesn't mean that my shoulder doesn't hurt this morning, mm-hmm. right? They're not cure. It's not a cure-all medicine. It is meant as a companion. It is a wonderful practice to say thank you. It is a wonderful practice to tell your friends and your family and the sun that shines at just the right degree that it doesn't burn you to a crisp nor freeze you. It is 
well and good to have gratitude and to say thank you. That is a companion to all of the things we are not thankful for, to all of the things that hurt, to the giant vacancies in our lives. Yes, practice gratitude, but don't weaponize it against yourself or someone else. And don't expect it to take away your pain because that is not what it's made for. That's not what gratitude is made for. That is not what beauty is made for. That is not what relationships are made for. They are all meant as companions to whatever happens in this life, the good and the not so good. And I think that not accepting that fact and that existential search for pain avoidance really is just volleying the pain back to the other person. As I was reading your book, I kept thinking about all of the articles I read a couple of years ago about the second wave of any tragedy. So whenever there's a natural disaster, how the next disaster comes in the form of people sending help that's not helpful. Mm -hmm. And I think that that gets to what we're doing when we're saying the platitudes or sending the cheery cards be grateful for the time you had with this person kind of thing. We're just volleying the pain back to the person. It hit me a little bit. I did a thing that made me feel better about it. It doesn't really help you, but I've checked it off. So you take it back. And if we could, instead of having the reaction like, oh, don't you're hurting my feelings because my intentions were good. Just saying, oh, I'm creating a second tragedy with my response. And that's not my intention. So let me back up. It would just be a healthier way to receive this information. Totally. Absolutely. I mean, there's a, there's an aspect of performative support, right? Mm -hmm. I can check that box. I sent my condolence card and you know, that's, it's not like that's nefarious, right? Because for some people, your, your relationship is such that sending a card is an, an appropriate gesture, right? Like I'm probably not going to show up at the doorstep of you know, somebody that I only know from the coffee shop, I I might actually, but do you know what I mean? Like there are degrees Uh of relatedness and for some people like sending a card is actually that's appropriate. And if you are actually interested in growing your interpersonal skills and actually being of use, then sure. You might want to look at like, what kind of messaging am I sending? What might be, um, what, what could I look at from another angle? How could I look from the other person's perspective and, and imagine how this might land, right? So much of empathy is looking from the other side, from the other person's perspective and saying, wow, how does my message land for you? How, how would that feel? Right. We have to put our, our minds and our hearts in the receiver's (laughs) mind and heart. And you know, I, I can hear like the pushback of other people in my head going like, I'm not working that hard. It's just a gesture. Like, lighten up. Well, okay. That's, that's fine. And those are the cards that go right in the recycling. Um, yep. However, I do. I think yeah. you have people that get paralyzed by perfection too. Yes. Because oh my gosh, they're yes, over that too. Yeah. That like too. I just want to say the perfect thing and I don't want to hurt. I can't bear the thought of causing them yeah. any more pain. Right. And don't everybody who's saying that and nod or thinking that and nodding right now, like don't let that stop you. The thing here mm-hmm. is, is that in nothing do you need to be perfect except for maybe like neurosurgery, but you <laughs> do not need to be perfect interpersonally. Showing up imperfectly is way better than not showing up at all. Here's how I like to do this, right? One, this should feel awkward. It should mm. feel comfortable. If it feels awkward and uncomfortable, you are on the right track because Word, what, that's so what true. feeling awkward says to you is you are doing something new mm-hmm. and we need you to do something new because the old ways aren't working. Mm-hmm. And if you want to get into alignment with your wonderful good intentions, then you got to feel a little bit awkward and uncomfortable as you learn a more effective way to deliver those intentions. So you should feel awkward. Look for the awkward. Step one. Step yeah. two is it's okay to claim I feel really weird about this and I'm really worried that I'm going to upset you more. So here's all of my love and a couple of tangible things I can do for you. And my hope is that there is some beauty inside your day today. Mm -hmm. Show up with your imperfection. Like, I love that. I love a person who says, I have no idea how to do this. And I love you so much that I'm willing to feel like an awkward, weird disaster Mm -hmm. and still show up. What a gift is your imperfection your awkwardness is a fantastic gift and we love it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. here's the other thing i wonder if 
Beth thought about, we haven't had a chance to talk about this, but I, I'm wondering if she had the same reaction. I, when, especially when in parts of your book where we talk about our culture's attitude towards pain, I thought so much about my three natural childbirths because that is a really up close and personal experience with physical pain. And it taught me so many philosophical lessons about how we think and deal with pain. Like the first thing I always tell people when they ask about my experience is the pain has a purpose, but that's not how we ever talk about it. Like we always talk about it, particularly with birth. Like it's just, it's just something to get, you know, something to get through, something to avoid, something to treat. When like what I tell people is it's, it's telling me something. It's telling me that position's not going to work. The baby is in distress because we didn't used to have monitoring equipments. Like to, to convey to, it's so hard. You have people like even, this is a silly example, but I do a thing called dry needling where they stick acupuncture needles in your muscles and you, you say needle and people just shut down. Now I'm, I'm about to tell you how this has like solved a chronic back issue with me. But the mere mention of physical pain, much less emotional pain, and you can just see people's face like a wall drops because we don't have any cultural conversation about that. The pain sometimes has a purpose that there is it's, you know, in the same way that you don't want to touch a hot stove. The hurt is like, don't do that. You'll burn your fingers off like emotional pain and and other types of physical pain and and different experiences like it's it's a way of communicating with yourself. It's a way of understanding what has been lost. It's a way of understanding, like, but it's so people just, they hear, (laughs) they just hear the word pain or something that might be pain. And again, this is just physical pain, much less emotional pain. And you can just see like the gate close in people's eyes. Yeah. And there's so much in that. So one thing I want to say first is that message that pain has a purpose. I think that that can get twisted really easily. Mm-hmm. We use it at other people, right? Yep. Your pain has a purpose, especially in religious communities, right? We say like, yep. God is using your pain for good. Well, that's offensive. Yep. Right. Or the freaking for, cancer community. Uh, Lord, I feel so bad uh, for anybody. Yeah. It's with cancer it's, just for that purpose really, alone. Yeah, it's what really, if I want to be a damn warrior? Exactly. Fuck that. So, but there's, there, so pain, I like to think of pain as information. Mm, that's good. right because for me that takes meaning making out of it mm-hmm. because like if, you know and the childbirth example is a great one if you're thinking like pain has a purpose I think that's really easy to slide into um this is all working for your good well sometimes right. the baby dies sometimes yeah. mama dies right so if we've got that operating system that that pain has a purpose we're, we're so pain avoidant in this culture we'll go pain has a purpose that applies to everything right mastery like, everything master is it. a nail everything is a hammer no <laughs> and pain is information yeah that's good right pain um i think that pain calls you into a relationship with whatever is happening and asks you to pay attention mm-hmm. that is different than saying that pain is part of a process to a glorious end goal right there is pain that doesn't get redeemed. There mm-hmm. is pain that doesn't get transformed. There is pain, no matter what kind of meaning or beauty grows out of it, is not worth it. Yeah. You can't look at, I'm going to go back to Rwanda, like you can't look at that level of violence and genocide mm-hmm. and pain and take, you know, one example that we cherry pick out of that and say, look at the beautiful work she's doing in the world and say that it makes any of that pain and suffering worth it because that pain had a purpose. No, no that pain was information and that information, any kind of pain, genocide, stubbing your toe, anything is there is something here that I need to attend to. What does yeah. this situation ask for from me? And I think another important piece here is that, you know, y- you were mentioning what we're doing when we're sort of othering somebody else's pain is I don't, your pain makes me start to feel pain and I don't feel pain. So shut up. Right. (laughs) There's a lot of different reasons for that. There's sort of chicken and the egg sort of stuff going on here because, you know, when, when my agent and I were, were looking for a publishing house for the manuscript for the book idea, a lot of the publishing houses and editors came back and said, Oh my gosh, this is amazing. We so need a conversation about this. Megan is great. We love this work, but grief books don't sell. Nobody really <laughs> wants to talk about this stuff. And then we no, would, you know, the, book came, the book came out and we would go to, um, 
media outlets and they would say, this is so important. This is such an important conversation, but nobody wants to talk about this stuff. Well, here's why people don't quote want to, don't want to talk about this stuff. If every time you say I'm in pain, somebody gives you advice or they dismiss it or they start talking about their own stuff. Of course, you don't want to talk about it. If every time I say, ow, I'm in pain, you say, I don't care, shut up, I'm not going to talk about it. What I have found in the conversations that happen because of this book, in the in the ways that people um, proselytize for the message that's in this book, in the in the comment sections, when we do start talking about this stuff out in the media, everybody wants to talk about this. Mm-hmm. If we talk about it in a way that is respectful and mm-hmm. intelligent and real, everybody has a pain story that they want to tell yep. and that they desperately need to be heard. The way to change a pain avoidant culture is to start making communities in which it is safe to talk about pain of all yeah. kinds. And we mm-hmm. go back to what I was saying with this like tip of the iceberg, talking about grief related to atypical or unusual death. The much bigger iceberg here is how do we talk about pain of any kind? We look at this in the Me Too movement. We look at this in um, the LGBTQ experience. We look at this in communities of color and systemic racism. We look at this in the refugee and immigrant populations. When anyone says, ow, this hurts, this is painful, what do we do? We jump in and we otherize. We give advice. We start talking about our own pain and center that instead of listening to somebody else's pain that needs and deserves the center. This is a giant cultural conversation that needs to happen across the spectrum. And that's really overwhelming. So what do we do with like this overwhelming machine of pain avoidance? Well, you start practicing. Mm -hmm. You start practicing in how you listen to your own pain. You start practicing listening to how you hear the pain of others. You practice on small things, like the person in line at your coffee shop who said, I had a really rough day because I didn't sleep well. That is an opportunity for you to practice hearing someone else without fixing it for them, without slapping a happy ending on it, without telling them that their pain has a purpose, and just listening. Like The way that we change the whole culture is to change each moment for ourselves. It's huge. Mm-hmm. I love that. I gave a talk yesterday about changing business culture, essentially. And I talked about a whole bunch of things. And at the end of my talk, I was doing Q&A and someone said, what's the first step? Because I feel like there's so much here and I want to get to all of it. And what can I do today? And I said, you know, today you can send an email saying, I was at a conference yesterday and I had such a nice conversation about you. Here are all the things this person said about you that were lovely. Because I do feel like it's just like leaning into each other that makes room Mm -hmm. for all of the next steps. And I love that you're giving this example that doesn't really have anything to do with grief. It's just everyday ordinary experience where we can walk towards someone else and say, let's do this life thing together. Yeah. It's minute practice, right? I, this is something that, you know, my favorite imagery right now is, is like a fire drill, right? Like the reason that we have fire drills is so that in the event of an unlikely emergency, we already know what to do. It's not new to us. Mm. So I think of, I think of this stuff as like the fire drill of love, the fire drill of relationship. We want to practice showing up, being able to withstand someone else's pain in the small things so that if there ever is an emergency, if there ever is somebody whose life has just dissolved in an instant, these skills aren't new to us, mm-hmm. right? We're called to use them all the time. And, you know, I, I love that you brought up business too. Like I actually do a lot of, uh, have a lot of conversations with corporations and with businesses about grief in the workplace Mm-hmm. And how do we, how do we show up and like, where are the boundaries there? Like, does the person who's just coming back to work after their mom died, do they really want the entire office coming through and asking them how they're doing? Maybe not. So how do we, like, how do we talk about this stuff? Like there are, there are so many choice points for how to enter the conversation and you can do it in ways that feel 
safe and stretching to you, right? I think that we can also think like, okay, I'm going to dive into the deep end of emotional vulnerability. Like, no, mm-hmm. like set yourself up for success. Practice on little things. Practice on small things. There's, um, there's actually. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So I, I run a writing course called Writing Your Grief. It's, it's really amazing, this really cool community that happens um, where people are allowed to tell the truth to each other. And there's a, a prompt in there about the condition of your heart. What's the condition of your heart today in this moment? And asking your heart to give you a response. I think that's a really cool way to start practicing coming into a relationship with your own pain. Again, this the small everyday pains and the bigger life-changing ones. Like, what's the condition of my heart today? Where, where am I in pain? What do I need from myself? Right? Like that idea that charity begins in the home. Well, paying attention to pain begins in your own home, in your own self, in your own life. I think that is a beautiful way to wrap up. Tell people where they can find all of the wonderful things you have to offer. All of the wonderful things. So the book you can find anywhere you get books. We love our independent booksellers. The title again is It's Okay That You're Not Okay, Meeting Grief and Loss in a Culture That Doesn't Understand. You can follow us on Instagram, which is my current favorite platform, at Refuge in Grief. The website is refugeingrief.com. We also have this really cool Patreon that the team and I launched uh, for the grief revolution. Like, how do we actually do a big cultural overhaul? So you can find all of the information on the grief revolution at patreon.com uh, backslash Megan Devine. There's also information about that on Instagram and all of those other places in case you can't find it. But do come and visit us. It's a really important conversation, one that's not easy, but one that is beautiful, as difficult as it can be. Mm. Amen to that. Thank you so much for spending this time with us and for sharing everything that you have learned with the world. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Megan. We're really hoping to have her on again to talk in more detail about particularly how individuals can care for themselves in grief and maybe even on pantsuit politics. We got, we had a lot of conversation even after we kept recording that I hope we get to expand on in a later time. So we hope you guys enjoyed that. We like to end every episode with some inspiration to keep you going throughout the week. And I wanted to share this amazing article from Austin Cleon. Do you like, do you, have you ever read any Austin Cleon, Beth? No, I'm excited about this. Oh, it's so good. His book, Still Like an Artist, is the best. Everybody should own that book. And this post is called An Enemy of Envy. When I heard art critic Jerry Salt saying this during his long-form podcast interview, I immediately got up, wrote it down on an index card, and pinned it above my desk. In another interview, he explains, When I was an artist, I used to walk around feeling sorry for myself always. Looked at every loft, every apartment, hated everyone I saw. Everyone. Hated you if you had a better apartment. Hated you if you had better hair. Hated this one for being tall. Hated that one. Everybody had it better than poor me. They had more money. Oh, I was cynical. I knew why she was getting what she got, and he got what he got, and I was eaten alive by this envy. Eaten alive, and now I tell you, artists and writers, you must make an enemy of envy today, today, by tonight, because it will eat you alive. I agree with him. It will eat you alive if you keep it up inside. I think one thing you can do is spit it out, cut it out or get it out by whatever means available, write it down or draw it out on paper and take a hard look at it so that it might actually teach you something. Over at the School of Life, here's a bit about how Frederick Nietzsche felt envy could be useful to us. Nietzsche thought of envy as a confused but important signal from our deeper selves about what we really want. Everything that makes us envious is a fragment of our true potential, which we disown at our peril. We should learn to study our envy forensically, keeping a diary of envious moments and then sift through episodes to discern the shape of a future better self. The envy we don't own up to will otherwise end up emitting what Nietzsche calls sulfurous odors. Bitterness is envy that doesn't understand itself. 
So first, don't deny your envy. And second, if you can try, try to examine it. My favorite writing on the subject of envy is the jealousy chapter of Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird. Jealousy is one of the occupational hazards of being a writer, she writes. Some wonderful, dazzling successes are going to happen for some of the most awful, angry, undeserving writers you know, people who are, in other words, not you. She says the only thing that helps seems to help with jealousy are getting older, talking about it until the fever breaks, and using it as material. As an example of C, she points out a favorite poem of mine, Clive James' delicious, nasty poem, The Book of My Enemy Has Been Remaindered. It begins, The Book of My Enemy Has Been Remaindered, and I Am Pleased. In vast quantities, it has been remaindered like a van load of counterfeit that has been seized. The narrator of the poem goes on to admit, soon now a book of mine could be remaindered also, but in his case it will be due to a miscalculated print run, a marketing error, nothing to do with merit. A good deal of this can be traced to a problem of ego. Here's how Zen Buddhist Zhuang Quan put it in Season 3, Episode 1 of Chef's Table. Creativity and ego cannot go together. If you free yourself from the comparing and jealous mind, your creativity opens up endlessly. Just as water springs from a fountain, creativity springs from every moment. You must not be your own obstacle. You must not be owned by the environment you are in. You must own the environment, the phenomenal world around you. You must be able to freely move in and out of your mind. This is being free. There is no way you can't open up your creativity. There is no ego to speak of. That is my belief. Easier said than done. You could try to practice the opposite of jealousy, which is something like the concept of mudita. Mudita is a word from Sanskrit and Pali that has no counterpart in English. It means sympathetic or unselfish joy, joy in the good fortune of others. Easier than that, even, is just to pretend. Have a script that you rehearse and repeat when necessary. Practice these words. Good for him. Good for her. Good for them. Good for you. That last one is sometimes the hardest. You say these words, and then you keep your head down, and you do your work. And should you get everything you always wanted, remember the words on a pillow Joan Rivers kept in her apartment. Don't expect praise without envy until you are dead. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of The Nuanced Life. We'll be back in your ears on Pansy Politics on Friday, right here again Wednesday of next week. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Nuance Life is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. The Nuance Life is listener supported. For $5 a month, you'll receive an extra episode of The Nuance Life at patreon.com slash The Nuance Life. You can connect with us on our website, thenuancelife.com, and follow us on Instagram.